Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Muslim Vibe podcast. My name is Salim Qasim, the chief editor of the Muslim Vibe, and today I'm joined by my yes. former business partner who wants to interrupt me. I thought you I was going to do like a really nice introduction. But you pointed at me, so I thought. Yeah, but no one can see the point. Don't forget. Okay, anyway, I was going to like start reading off all these attributes, but I'm just going to say Hasib Rizvi, director of the Muslim Vibe. Uh, that was what I was aiming for anyway. I was hoping to go a bit. It's the end of year special. I thought, you know, just... It's the end of year special, guys. Um, so I think let's just get straight, uh, you know, get, let's get stuck straight into it. Yeah. Uh, if you can edit that part out. No, um, that's fine. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Islamophobia is real. It is. 2017, Islamophobia is real. Explain. Well, I think um, what we meant by that is obviously Islamophobia is real. And um, that's, that's not a great way to start. Um, yeah, no, what, what I think we meant by that was that this year we've seen a lot of, or at least I've seen a lot of discussions about whether Islamophobia is racism, whether it's xenophobia, whether you can term Islamophobia as racism because Islam's not a race and Muslims are, are not one homogenous people and whatever. But Fundamentally, I think we've seen you know a steep rise in Islamophobic attacks and and instances around the world, and that's only going to escalate. And unfortunately, I think twenty seventeen is going to be the worst year in history that we've seen for such attacks. And and it's just time that people move past the semantics of what Islamophobia is and defining what it means to be Muslim and and whatever else, and just looking for solutions to actually tackle this and, and, you know, getting Muslims to actually report. So you have organisations like Tal Mama who do a fantastic job of documenting instances. And care in, in the United and States. And care in the United States. Um, MCB also um, do great work in the UK. Actually just saying, OK, look, this is happening. Now we need to report it. We need to document it. We need to start actually putting this forward and, and looking for solutions to how to tackle it and safeguarding Muslims as well. And that's at a government level, at a local level, um, it's it's becoming an issue, unfortunately, and something that needs to be tackled. I think uh, another thing that we can actually see coming in twenty seventeen um, is is an attack on what it means to be a Western Muslim in terms of identity. So two weeks ago, um, BBC, I think it was a week ago actually, BBC released this you know two part series called Muslims Like Us, which profile ten. Uh, supposedly random Muslim individuals who lived in the house for 10, for ten days. Well, why do you say supposedly? You think they weren't random? Supposedly random. <laughs> like, I don't I don't know. Um, but so they were, they were put in a house and then it kind of just showed and highlighted a lot of the differences and um, conflicts that exist within the Muslim community. And to be fair, they exist. Like the, yeah. this isn't the BBC uh, exaggerating. These issues do actually exist. We do have... Muslims who are more liberal leaning who, who for example feel they don't need to wear hijab to be a Muslim or they don't need to pray to be a Muslim or they don't need to eat halal to be a Muslim and so on and so forth we, we know that these things exist we know that at the same time we've got extremists who believe that oh you, you can only pray a certain way you can only eat a certain way you can only literally sleep a certain way um, and then somewhere in the middle is the majority of us who understand the principles of Islam yeah. and don't believe in ex taking an extreme approach and also don't believe in taking a, a liberal approach. Um, but what I think uh, what that kind of documentary uh, did was essentially segment the Muslim community 
um, and made us vulnerable in the sense that it's now public uh, as to how divided we actually are. Well, I, I disagree. I don't think it's about being divided. I think fundamentally it was... You can look at it in two ways. Either you can say, oh, there was a clear agenda there to, as you say, segment the Muslims and say there's this type, there's this type. But you know that with every, you know, if you look at any religion, any type of people, you're always going to have a diverse range of people. So for me, the way I saw the show was that it was just a bit of entertainment. Um, it was like a little social experiment, but I don't think it was a case of, oh, let's air Muslims' dirty laundry everywhere and and now we've weakened them and we've split them up and divided them i mean you know people discuss the show for example but i don't think anyone has like fallen out well i mean the more extreme people might have fallen out over it but by and large everyone just got to discuss it It was interesting talking points around the dinner table i know it was in my household um that's how, that, that's it really that's how i saw it but what i'm saying is it's not just i'm not just talking about the show itself and what i'm talking about is the attack on what it means to be a Western Muslim, mm. i.e. this whole conversation that's happening in the UK right now about British values, yeah. or what it means to be an American patriot, or what it means to be European, and all these concepts that aren't defined um, and are being thrown at Muslims, basically. It's yeah. like, oh, do you believe in democracy? Do you believe in um, free speech? Do you believe in this? Do you believe in, you know, relationships and love and all these random kind of... Uh, concepts that we've you know that, that exist in our society mm-hmm. um, and that's being they're, they're being poised against uh, our Muslim identity if that makes sense I think I, I said on a previous podcast as well that um, the issue is most people are confused about their identity and that's okay yeah. but Muslims aren't allowed to be confused we have to say what we are we have to say what it means to be British am I British am I Muslim first and and for me, that's one of the problems. So I, I I understand your point. I take that on board, but I think that's that's the problem for me. Is in, that in terms of in terms of solutions for this, yeah, you know, one of the ideas behind the Muslim vibe, one of the reasons why we created it was, uh, in fact, the main reason is is because we do want to reaffirm uh, a strong sense of uh, being a Muslim in the West, hmm. um, and by that, what we mean is people that are practicing, but at the same time, you know, uh, are are integrated in society in a beneficial way that doesn't mean you go to a pub or a club just to kind of show that oh you're part of this society that what that means is you know um being involved in a society in a productive level yeah, that, yeah. that helps non-muslims that helps you know your society you know get involved in your local government and stuff like that yeah. um to bring a positive uh, influence to, to your surroundings Okay, so the the second thing on our list was uh, the organized takedown of muslim organizations and individuals do you want to talk a bit more about why we think we're going to see that more in 2017? So, uh, a recent pattern uh, that I've actually been personally analysing over the past few years anyway is how uh, certain parts of the mainstream media have taken upon themselves to essentially destroy... Um, Salim, do me a favour. What are you doing on your phone? I'm looking at the list. Okay, but you're... It's not, I can't... I can't have that natural conversation if you're just looking at your phone, isn't it? That's how we normally talk. <laughs> put, put away. All right, go on. Looking at my list, my house. We can put it in candy. No. Um. So anyway, start, start, start the egg number two. You're so angry sometimes. Um. So the second thing on our list is uh, the organised take. Start, the, oh, move your hand away from reading. The I don't know. That's how I sit. The second thing on our list. Right, I'll start again. The second thing on our list is the organised takedowns of Muslim organisations and individuals. 
Now, why do you think we're going to see more of that in 2017? So, a recent pattern that I've, I've been looking at over the last few years is how certain parts of the mainstream media have taken an organisation or an individual and essentially character assassinated them and destroyed them. Mm. Um, and, and we saw that happen this year as well. And I, on my own Facebook page, I said, oh, you know what, we're going to see this taking place, for example, not only just in the Sunni community, but also in the Shia community. And 2016 was the year where we actually saw that actually take place within the Shia community as well uh, for the first time, which is where you know mainstream just kind of go after you. Um, so I think now... Uh, the, the, the key organisations that are uh, anti-establishment, the ones that are actually trying to provide uh, the right platform for, for, for Western Muslims uh, are going to be under immense pressure. Yeah. By that, I mean organisations such as, like for example, the MCB or CARE even. Well, the thing is, MCB did have a recent issue after the Casey report yeah. came out. Yeah. I think McDowd Veracy said, said something and... and some some right wing journalists didn't take too kindly to it, and they had pictures of him with like screaming crowds in the background. They had like edited a picture up uh, to make him look like, and, and they called him like a, a Muslim leader. Calls for I don't know what I can't remember the exact uh, claims they were making, but it's it's already started, and I think that was the first instance. And I I know McDad um, personally, and that's the first time I've seen him being attacked in that way in the media, and I was quite shocked. I think Breitbart picked it up first, as they usually do, as the trend usually goes. Breitbart picks it up, and then some journalists that you know the and evening see, standard, to, the mirror. You have pick to understand the objective behind all of this, right? Because divide and conquer is the the ace strategy that that imperialists have been using for since day one, basically. Mm. Now, what you do by destroying uh, people in positions of leadership or credibility, what you do to that community is you basically give them no outlet. Um, in fact, if you, it kind of reminds me of how uh, during the, the era of slavery, uh, it's, it's kind of really you know, twi- twisted, uh, the kind of thought that these people used to have. But it was bring the strongest male from the, 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 basically the crowd of, of slaves and humiliate him. What that does then, it breaks the will of the smaller individuals in that, in that group of people. And, and it's basically like mental warfare. Um, in the same way, when Muslim organizations see their credible leaders basically having their nose uh, dragged through the mud, it, it kind of makes you feel a bit weak, doesn't it? Because your, your leaders, mm. even, if they, even if you subscribe to them or don't subscribe to their point of view, but you just see people in position of power and influence within the Muslim community being uh, humiliated, it, it destroys you a little bit inside because it, it kind of thinks, well, there's nothing I can do to change this now. That's that's that you put it in a very interesting way, but how do you think we can end that cycle? I don't think the question is so much about how we can end it because this is something that's going to continue to happen. Um, but what we can do as a Muslim community is resist the, these attempts to divide us. Um, we know that there's there's a machine behind all this Islamophobia in the mainstream media and even at you know a governmental level. We know that there is that. There's no point in denying it. Um, but the problem is, is that we often fall for it. So when we see another Muslim organization being humiliated, we jump on the bandwagon, not not only to not defend it, but actually throw our own insults in there as well. Mm. Um, be it on sectarian lines or political differences, whatever it may be kind of thing. But it's like, oh, that guy's a Salafi. I don't like him. 
the Daily Mail has just exposed him, so I'm going to share it. I'm going to, uh, yeah. you know, add my own comments to it as well. But ultimately speaking, what we keep forgetting is that an attack on, uh, a, you know, a subsection within the Muslim community is an attack on all of us. And we shouldn't stand for it. Even if we do have differences ideologically, um, you know, we have to see that the bigger objective here is not just to take down, you know, let's say Salafis or, or Sunnis or Shias or whatever it may be, or whatever denomination you call yourself. Um, it's an attack on all of us. Um, and we can't keep falling for it. Okay, so um, moving on swiftly. Uh, our third point was the... Fet- I can't even say this right. I was... The fetishization, the fetishization of Muslim women, and the hijab, and the hijab, and what I've noticed over the last twelve months or so is that the hijab has become something quite exotic and something quite amorous. Is that even the right word? We'll stick with it. It sounds well, well, right. okay, you know. But they, essentially, it's become one of those things that people like to kind of dabble in and and yeah. kind of explore and whatever else. So. You had the example of, of Playboy looking for a hijabi to be, you know, in their magazine. And what was interesting is, you know, besides the fact that Nurutuguri did it, they approached several... It could have been anyone. It could have been anyone. But what they wanted was, they wanted a hijab because it was like, oh, this is trendy this year. Let's let's have a hijabi and say, this is someone who's breaking stereotypes, who's pushing the boundaries. And for me, that's quite troubling that it's like, you know, that's what, they're, that's what they like. And then, you know, likewise, on a, on a, on a kind of softer level in advertising, I think it was a Toys R Us advert, you've got people singing the Toys R Us song, uh, which I'm not going to sing right now, um, but you've in there, at the beginning, there's a woman in a hijab singing. And again, it's like, you know, the left are using it to show that, look how liberal and inclusive we are, and, you know, we've got hijabis here, and on the right, it's, you know, to demonise, and then also but you've got... But at the same time, do you not see it as something that is a good thing in the sense that it's representing us in a much more wider perspective as opposed to how we're only ever usually represented, which is as terrorists. Yeah, but I, I think that's fine. No, it is good. It's definitely positive. And as I said, you know, when when liberal entities and, and the left are using Muslims in that way, I think it's it can be quite positive and quite empowering. But, you know, just like the criticisms you had of Muslims like us, it's about doing things on our terms right. and being represented in a way that we want to be represented. Not a case of, oh, here's a casting call for a Muslim for X, Y, Z reason. We need to, as I said, it needs to be on our terms, and we need to understand why people want a Muslim. If it's just a token gesture, it's pointless at the end of the day. It's just a box-ticking exercise. You know, if we've got a quota, we need this this many ethnics, let's just chuck them in. That's, that's what, what I feel also is, is that a lot of these big uh, capitalist corporations are realising that there's a, there's a wealthy Muslim market out there around the world, right? Yeah. Where we're a fifth of the world's population, pretty much. And if they just put a hijabi in, in their adverts, then, you know, they'll have a much more favourable outlook with, with our community. Don't also, you know, don't forget that, I remember we, me and you once attended a meeting where someone informed us that I think the largest halal meat supplier in the UK is not a Muslim, it's yeah. I think a Sikh guy. Yeah. And he's basically cottoned on to the fact that there's a huge Muslim market. And I think, you know, as a as a consumer, you know, generally and whatever else, we need to be wise in understanding when people are kind of using Muslims to pander towards us and when people are actually going above and beyond, if that makes sense, to, to cater to a Muslim audience. And I think that there's, 
there's subtle things there that you can. It's look an out interesting for. one. I think I think we'll move on from there, but I think it's something to think about. Yeah. Um, and I guess in 2017 we'll see more of it, and we'll be able to understand it a lot better as well. Yeah. Um, at the moment, I think you're right. Though it's, it's worthwhile flagging as something to to look out for. Now, the big one, Donald Trump. Trump 2017. Yeah, I'm. I'm I mean, <laughs> leading up to the elections, I, I'm pretty sure we we didn't anticipate this happening. Well, um, we you, did. You did. But that's because you're always a skeptic and you want the world to burn. Yeah, but <laughs> you're not denying that you want right. the world. To burn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we 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 saw it coming, or you saw it coming, um, but. What now, I guess, is the question. Um, I think the past few weeks since, since uh, Donald Trump uh, has, has obviously won the elections, we've seen him announce his cabinet. Um, and it's, it's very worrying when, you know, I think, I think the Secretary of State is the CEO or, or, or an executive in ExxonMobil. Um, and that's, that's just like bewildering because if it seems the way it seems which is that this team that he's put together is technically something like George Bush's cabinet on steroids um, and George Bush was pretty bad in fact this is potentially one of the worst ones that we've ever seen mm. now I don't know what that means for Muslims globally because Donald Trump has said on, on from a global perspective that he's not interested in intervening in, in the Middle East and so on and so forth, right? But we also know that he's backtracked a lot of the things that he's he's promised. So maybe that's another thing that he's going to backtrack on. Maybe he is going to get his hands uh, involved in, in Syria and Iraq. And, and, and yeah, but it's just, it's just like worse. Trump said he was going to close down Guantanamo. And Sorry, you mean Obama? Sorry, did I say Trump? Yeah, Obama. I don't think Trump would have said that. Trump, yeah. He's extending that. <laughs> Trump, Trump is going to build another grant. No, so, so when Obama said that, everyone thought, yeah, let's do this. And then I don't know how long before anything even took place on the ground. And so we've always seen throughout history that presidents make promises and then don't keep them. The problem with Trump is he's made so many outrageous promises that you almost feel like he's got to keep some of them to maintain some form of credibility with his voters, with the people that voted for him. Yeah, but he he's not though, is he? And and he's he's said quite a lot. He's he's, I think Trevor Noah's got a video of uh, just where he just shows Trump literally saying, "Oh yeah, I didn't mean it. I just said it to get the votes." Like literally, like in front of the whole crowd. Um, so I I'm not sure. Um, but in terms of domestically, my concern is is that obviously, and I guess this is a segue onto the next point, which is the right rise of the right wing, um, which is that this is emboldened. Uh, white supremacy uh, in the United States um, and across Europe as well actually uh, where you know these right wing concepts are now taking place they've, they've been given like a new name it's almost like they're like hippie almost old right it sounds thing. really cool it sounds really cool I want like, to oh, be old right yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so th that, that for me is now becoming a worrying uh, thing because we've all known as minorities that racism has existed for a long time. It hasn't gone away. People tell you it's gone away, but it's not. But now it's it's got legs. Now it's got a president as such. It's got a wig. It's got a wig and it's got a tan. Um, 
so what we're seeing is is the rise of the right wing uh, in America. We've seen we're seeing it in happening in Europe. But now here's here's actually something really uh, worrying to look out for, which is France has an election next year, where uh, the the National Front is poised to actually be able to win it. That if that doesn't bring alarm bells, I, I don't know what will. Mm. Um, this is a party that is is literally like Nazi light, and uh, that that seem they seem on a trajectory to win, just based off you know the, the this like angry sentiment that's taking place amongst white people. Yeah. Which oh we're disengaged and and it's the immigrants they're taking our jobs and this you know we've heard the rhetoric we know what they think, um, but I think the rise of the right wing is something that we have to look out for, um, and that ties in with another point that we wanted to make uh, further on down the line, uh, but I think we'll 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 leave that for just for now, and talk about Syria. So yeah, again we we were what we've seen over the last few weeks. By the way, guys, we're really sorry that this is really depressing, and I, and we want you all to have a good twenty seventeen. We really do. Um, it's just we're kind of just brainstorming some of the things that we think are likely to happen and likely to affect us, um, but it it doesn't seem great. It doesn't seem very bright, um, but. I don't even have to. <laughs> there's no, there's no but. Is so it? let's, as you know, un- unfortunately, let's now talk about Syria. Yeah. And what we've seen over the last few weeks has been horrific, uh, to say the least. You know, the the humanitarian crisis in East Aleppo is, it's just tragic, and unfortunately, neither of us can really see an end in sight. You know, let's say, the rebels win. There's going to be a huge vacuum there in terms of power. There's going to be power struggles. There's going to be pockets of, mm-hmm. of fighting or whatever else. If Assad manages to beat the rebels, then you've got the same issue because he's not going to be able to squash everyone. And there's going to be underground groups that are going to rise up. There's going to be terrorist attacks and bombings and this and that. And it's it's an ongoing crisis. It's going to be something that's going to affect and plague the region for at least the next five or ten years. And the other thing is as well is that the people that have invested... In, in this chaos in Syria, all sides, by the way, they're not going to just suddenly back down now. Like as in Saudi Arabia, Qatar and all these other, you know, Gulf, Gulf states that have invested millions, if not billions, into funding uh, the, these militia terrorist groups slash rebels. They're not just going to suddenly bow out and be like, oh, OK, it's over. <laughs> they're not going to do that. Neither is Israel, neither is America, yeah. um, who are the key stakeholders in this. Yeah. They're not gonna just back away from this and be like, okay, uh, Assad, hey, you go. Let's. It's not really gonna happen. So, it's just such a sickening feeling to realize that, for at least another five, ten years, if not more, we're probably gonna see this situ- this this conflict, carry on, um, and see, you know, innocent civilians basically being just absolutely demolished and just destroyed with no end in sight it's 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 really sad and what's even worse about this is that the division that is caused outside of syria so this one one specific thing called syria has polarized and divided the muslim ummah in such a 
titanic way where we have muslims on either side prepared to not only just kill each other but let's say if you just on, on online here in the west on facebook just going at each other not you know one after the other like comments and propaganda and sharing links and mm. you're an asset supporter and you're a zionist supporter and you're this and you're that and it's just never ending I think there's that there's that quote that you mentioned to me earlier, which was um, the first casualty of any war is the truth. Yeah. And for me, what's been very interesting myself whilst trying to read the news and figure out what's going on, is that without understanding the the media bias on on every side, it's really difficult to be able to find out what the truth actually is. So, for example, if you're reading a, an RT or a Russia Today piece about the conflict you know they're going to be on one side of it. Likewise, if you're reading something about the B- by the BBC, you know what their opinion of Russia is, and so they're going to start a story in, in a certain way. And what's very difficult for us as people that, you know, we don't know anyone who's directly there on the ground in Aleppo, it's very difficult to understand what's happening, you know, who's doing what on what side. And essentially it's just a case of, of trying to to find the truth, even if that goes against the narrative that you have in your brain, it's about having that humility and being able to understand the story for what it is, not for which side. You see, you see having having said that as well, Salim, like there is, this isn't a blanket solution. This isn't a blanket template that you're gonna follow and everything's gonna make yeah. sense after it. But ultimately, you have to look at it like this: certain stakeholders in this conflict want a certain result. And we know who they are. The United States, Israel, the UK, or let's put it in brackets, the West, don't want Assad there. They want the rebels to win. The rebels don't serve them a true purpose other than removing Assad. So we've seen them do the same thing in Iraq. We've seen them do the same thing in Afghanistan, in Libya, in in North Africa and, and and. Egypt and you you name it literally we've seen them do the same thing where they fund these rebels they arm them these rebels then become terrorist groups they become uh, so-called Islamic uh, Islamist uh, militants um, and then after they've achieved a certain goal i.e. they've knocked out the power structure they then want to replace it with a puppet of their own which then just continues the cycle in a different in a different way so we have to understand that is the playbook that's being undertaken in Syria. Obviously, there's a lot more layers to it. Yes, it's way more complicated than any time in, in history. Um, but I think once you start seeing things from that perspective, it is somewhat clearer to see who's on what side at the end of the day. Hmm. When, you, when you know that there's you know so-called rebels that are supposedly fighting for a free Syria, but are also taking uh, civilian populations as hostage not saying that Assad's a a saint by the way just putting it out there like I don't agree with a lot of the things that uh, Bashar Assad and the forces uh, his forces have done but at the end of the day when when that's happening it's very hard for you to say you know ultimately look put it like this if you're going to have a perspective on Syria have it in a way which is non-divisive non-inflammatory, non-degrading and isn't arrogant and by what arrogant I mean is don't have so much confidence that you know the truth because I don't think anyone can sit here with any sort of 
you know, uh, in any position and say, yeah, I know exactly what's happening in Syria and mm-hmm. this is what needs to be done to fix it. No one knows that. All right, so moving on. Last couple of points we had. Um, so here, guys, we've just tried to make things, end things on a bit of a positive note. We've tried. <laughs> we've tried. We've tried. That, that's what counts. Um, so Muslims making alliances. See, yeah. this is your point, so I'm going to let you start it off. So what I see happening now, um, so we've, we're becoming more polarised. So we're getting more people extreme, more people liberal. Uh, so more people conservative, more people liberal. Uh, we're seeing more right-wing, more left-wing kind of discussions taking place. Um, and in the middle of all, you've kind of got Muslims being dragged around by everyone kind of thing. Yeah. So what I see happening now, um, and this is a good thing um, with a caveat, is Muslims now taking the initiative to become to make alliances with other minority groups and other activists. And this is a very key thing that we do need to do. So, for example, I want to see, and I'm hoping that 2017 we'll start seeing this, but I want to see Muslims in America align themselves with uh, Black Lives Matter, with, um, for example, two, three weeks ago we had the the crisis in North Dakota with the the Red Indians and and the Native Americans, sorry. You had you had Palestinians going down there and showing their support for that cause. Exactly, and, and and I think that's the kind of energy that we need to really build on. Yeah, we need to we need to align ourselves with green activists, um, and 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 uh, social socialists that want to see economic uh, justice. We need to be part of these discussions and and yeah. and align ourselves with with these kind of organisations. I think you're right in that for too long Muslims have been too concerned about their sort of inner community. We've been very insular. Yeah, very insular. It's all about community politics and all of that kind of stuff. But now, I guess, you know, given all the things we've mentioned over the last half an hour, the issue is that we have so many external forces that are trying to impact and pull us which way, you know, every which way that it's now time that we fight back, but we fight back in a concerted way, you know, with organisations that have already established themselves, that are already a part of the struggle against uh the the powers that be yeah but there is one there is one caveat to all of this as well and this is where i fear um a lot of our organizations are gonna are gonna fail which is that we also have to be very careful as to which organizations and which institutions and which movements we align ourselves with for example i have seen a lot of muslim american leaders talking about uh Muslims should align themselves with the LGBT movement because LGBTs are a minority as well. But you see, such such alliances come at a compromise of your principles and your values. In the same way, for example, we can't promote communism either. It's a political concept. It doesn't necessarily always contradict Islam, but there's elements of it that are anti-religious. It may be phased out, it may not uh, be relevant in, in modern communism, so to speak, um, but it's there at some degree. So we have to be very careful as to which organisations we work with. We've, I've seen here in the UK Muslim organisations working with uh, Jewish organisations on the grounds of interfaith, which at a surface level is fantastic, it's great. Why not work with Jewish people? You know, they're our cousins in, in faith ultimately. Mm. But the problem is, is when these Jewish organisations are taking more than they're giving. And what I mean by that is that 
they're actually Zionist organizations that are putting out a facade of them extending a hand towards Muslims and us because of our lack of organization are all the like we, we just jump up and down like the minute we get you know a, a visit from a, a non-Muslim looking face and, and we just you know agree to all terms and conditions and, and, and sign everything uh, without realizing that what that one Zionist, Zionist organization has actually achieved is been able to say look I've got so-and-so organizations or so-and-so individuals to compromise on the concept of Palestine uh, without even saying a thing and we've seen subsequently literature being handed out in such centers and in such organizations which uh, you know is very very subtle but we have to understand this is how the game is played to, to change the concept of, of Muslims sorry change the mentality of Muslims at a very very basic level when you start handing out leaflets that legitimize Israel, for example, that's enough. So we have to be very careful about where where we uh, you know where we put ourselves in terms of which organisations we're working with. That was a bit of a mouthful. That was that was um, because we're we're running short on time. We'll just move on to the last point, and uh, this is hopefully the the light at the end of the tunnel which is the rise of the Muslim voice. Now, when we started the Muslim Vibe in 2014, I could probably count on my on one hand how many other similar media organisations or voices there were out there in the public. There were some, and you know, I'm sure in other parts of the world, you know, there are bigger presences, but now, two years later, there's so many. And it's, it's, it's actually quite a positive thing. It's very uplifting. Whenever I see a new media outlet being born, you know, I'll, I'll send you the link. We'll have a look at it. Some of them are designed very well. Some not so much. Some of them have great content. Some, again, not so much. But the good thing is that there are more Muslims taking action and more Muslims using their voice and using the internet, using social media to get across our narrative. And I think that's going to be so important going forward when we have all of these obstacles in front of us. We have to have our voice, we have to be strong and we have to use it. I totally agree with you. And, and, and like you said, just echoing what you said, is this was the, the concept behind the Muslim vibe, was to be able to provide people a platform to speak out, to share their, uh, their opinions and ideas in a productive and positive way. Um, and this is, uh, I feel 2017, we're going to see more and more of this, uh, simply because more and more Muslims are going to be feeling, I guess, the squeeze in reality, when, you, when you're going to see so much going on around you, ultimately, more people are going to become aware of it and more people are then going to speak out. And this is something that I believe is, is a good thing. Um, obviously, it, you know, there is a cost involved in the sense that, you know, we are going to be subjugated to various degrees of discrimination. But we have to, it, it's only going to be worth it, um, if you can even say that, if we turn that into something productive and positive. We need to speak up. We need to do more to reach out to our our society. You know, a lot of times, Salim, we will sit there and we will question, uh, you know, this whole concept of Muslims need to integrate. And we're like, no, what that, why do we need to integrate? But realistically, we do. And that doesn't mean we go to, to nightclubs or anything like that. It simply means we reach out to our local society, speak to people, um, because you see we've become not only insular as a muslim community but generally western societies people are keeping themselves to themselves a lot more and even on facebook and even on our social media networks 
we're only following and being followed by like-minded people. So we're just shouting in a room with each other and it's not going to change anything. So I guess I guess beyond creating these platforms, we also need to find ways of of infiltrating, not even infiltrating. That but sounds so wrong. I know that sounds really bad. I shouldn't have said that. That sounds but so wrong. We need to find ways of, of getting our message, our narrative, our voice into places it wouldn't have been heard before. And what I'm saying, Salim, is at a granular level. Yeah. Right? So one of the concepts, and inshallah, pray for us that in 2017 we'll be able to launch a new project, um, which is based on the idea that if one Muslim like me, like you, was to go out and speak to 20 or 40 other people, not doing da'wah, we're not talking about aggressive street da'wah or you know trying to convert people, but just share one positive fact about Islam to 40 people, to 40 people. Now imagine if there's 1 million Muslims, you can, you can then, by extension, have an effect on 40 million other individuals. Yeah, the math checks out on that one. The one times four yeah, equals yeah, yeah, yeah. four. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. All right. So, so that's we we you know if you think about the maths just from that perspective, how difficult would it really be for you to go and make a list of forty people, your colleagues, your coworkers, your you know peers at school and universities and you name it, individuals even on the street, your neighbors, for example. Yeah. Um. You know, I was talking to to my wife the other day, Salim, and I was like, you know, Islamically, we're responsible for the welfare. Of 20 neighbours either side. I don't even know the name of my neighbour. Yeah. I don't think you do. I do actually. Oh, you do? I think yeah, fair yeah. enough. Elaine. Um, huh? Elaine. Is she Muslim? A... No, no. Oh, fair enough. Well, so. <laughs> why would Elaine be Muslim? It's not Elena. I thought, I no, like Elaine. It's Elena, but she's, she's, uh, she Elaine. speaks Italian. Fair enough. So, that's so, good. That's you know your name. That's information for you. Now, you got, you got, you got about. Elaine, 30, if you're listening, I hope you're doing well. 39 more to cover. So this is the thing. We've all got to actually make an effort now to mm. not just... Because social media, this is the thing. It's almost a trap as well, by the way. But we keep saying to people, oh, yeah, speak out on social media. But who are you speaking out to? Yeah. I think also you, you one point you, you reminded me about is that, you know, we talk about the oppression of Muslims and all the issues we face. But like, as you just said, fundamentally, our religion is a beautiful thing. Mm. And it's something that we, we should share, not because we want to convert people or we're trying to you know, pitch them in any way whatsoever, but it's just the case of this is, you know, the, the Prophet did some amazing things in his life and, and the lessons we've learned and that, you know, we try and live by that example, I personally would just like to share that with people. 100%. And, and if we all did more of that and all just, you know, spread positive messages out into the world, the world would become a better place. Definitely, definitely. So 2017... I think we should we should kind of make a, a vow and a pledge to to go out into the world and actually do that and and you know everybody in their own individual capacities go out and talk to people you know face you know this is one thing doing a podcast having a website but face to face you can actually impact people and and just make a change definitely definitely and we'll be rolling that out as a project inshallah so keep your eye uh, open for that one um, hopefully by mid uh, 2017 we or before that hopefully even. We aim to launch a new project as part of Muslim Vibe, uh, which will facilitate what we're talking about, which is spreading not Islam as such, but the you know the values of Islam and and, and the right representation of it on a on a significant scale. Finally, if you've made it this far, I'd like to congratulate you. You've you've sat through some uh, pretty grim stuff, but then also some very positive stuff, hopefully. 
this has been our review of the year 2017. If you have any ideas or suggestions or would like to get involved in any way whatsoever with the project, then please feel free to email me on editor at themuslimvibe.com and I guess we'll see you in 2017. Assalamu alaikum.